Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? How's your Monday morning going? Are you okay? What's happening? I'm recording this Sunday. I don't know what's happened this morning. All right, have we turned into a uh, bona fide authoritarian country? What's happening? I don't know what the big mystery is with some people. It's a, it's an agenda. That's what they want. Authoritarianism. So what do we do? I don't know. Hope the voting works. I guess uh, if he if he gets rid of Mueller, we're going to have to at least get out in the streets and do what we can, right? Or are we just going to wear the hat? All right, what... I have to wear this hat now when? Just outside or? Oh, at work too? Oh, okay. And don't ask any questions about anything? Oh, yeah, you're right. I know. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Right, so just honor the fear. That's what you're saying? Okay, but I can still, it doesn't change my my internet, right, or anything? Cars the same? Credit cards all still good? Everything still works the same way? All right, okay. So this hat, is there a choice of colors? Uh, sorry. No, okay. This one's fine. Red's fine. It's fine. I, I never was much for the slogan. You're right. Again, see, I'm asking questions. Okay. What happened to those people down the street? Did they just... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I'm good. I'm good. No, I'm going to go work in my yard. So, look, uh, people die every day. And you know some of them, and it's one of those things in life that which I guess we're built to handle and there's so there's certainly no avoiding it but some people depending on the the life we live you know go sooner for for reasons that may have something to do with how they lived but uh but in the racket I'm in you know some people go hard for for many years and they they may give it up but they go hard and and Mike McDonald Canadian Mike McDonald, the Canadian comic, was certainly one of those people, and uh, he passed away over the weekend, and uh, I had talked to him recently, and he was, you know, he was, he was, he was doing all right, you know, I, I believe he had a new liver, and, uh, you know, he certainly, 
He's certainly gone through it, and we talked a lot about that. It's still in the feed. You can go to WTFpod.com slash podcast and find it. It's still up live. We recorded it, or we posted it August 10th. And uh, I always liked Mike, and over the years I would see him occasionally. I, I can't say that we were close, but but not unlike many people in my business. Uh, we see each other here and there on the road, you know, run into him at clubs. But I always liked him. He was always a, a very, uh, back in the day, a very disgruntled, aggravated, simmering, explosive, uh, <laughs> but uh, but lovable guy. And, uh, and you know, he, he battled a lot of things. And his health was not great, but when I talked to him, it was certainly better, and he seemed to have some peace in his life. And now he's uh, he's passed away, and I just wanted to draw attention to that uh, and uh, and let people know if you didn't know, and also let you know that uh, the uh, the episode, if you want to get to know Mike or you want to hear what I imagine was one of the the last uh, full uh, conversations with him, it's there. It's there in, in the feed if you go to WTFpod slash podcast and for some reason when i was driving over here um this song i had came on in my shuffle in the car and i don't know that i'd ever paid attention to the lyrics and i was thinking about what i was going to say you know about mike and about death and about you know choosing a way of life or having a way of life choose you that may not be the best uh the best uh idea but sometimes because of uh Troubles of the mind, troubles of the heart, uh, or just a full-on fury of uh, of uh, misguided passion, and you, you know you you get fucked up. And you know I I was just listening, and this this song came up, and I'm going to read it because it it is by one of the great bards, one of the great American poets. And uh, and I and I'd read it over and and after listening to it and I thought it was appropriate. I thought it was uh, appropriate for many of us. So this is like a soldier by Johnny Cash, with the twilight colors falling and the evening laying shadows. Hidden memories come stealing from my mind, and I feel my own heart beating out the simple joy of living. And I wonder how I ever was that kind. But the wild road I was rambling was always out there calling. And you said a hundred times I should have died. Then you reached down and touched me and lifted me up with you. So I believe it was a road that I was meant to ride. I'm like a soldier getting over the war. I'm like a young man getting over his crazy days. Like a bandit getting over his lawless ways. I don't have to do that anymore. I'm like a soldier getting over the war. There are nights I don't remember in pain it's been forgotten and a lot of things I choose not to recall. There are faces that come to me in my darkest secret memories, faces that I wish would not come back at all. But in my dreams parade of lovers from the other times and places, there's not one that matters now no matter who. I'm just thankful for the journey and that I've survived the battles and that my spoils of victory is you. I'm like a soldier getting over the war. I'm like a young man getting over his crazy days. Like a bandit getting over his lawless ways. Every day gets better than the day before. I'm like a soldier getting over the war. Rest in peace, Mike McDonald. Today on the show, we've got a bit of a doubleheader. I got a, a, a nice long shorty with uh, Bill Hader, 
And then after that, uh, Nell Scovell is here. Uh, she is a, a comedy writer uh, who has a new a memoir out. She's written a lot of uh, written for a lot of shows you know. It's called Just the Funny Parts, and we'll talk to her in a little bit. Before I, I uh, bring in Bill Hader here, I wanted to tell you that I'm going to be uh, jamming with Jimmy Vivino, who's the band leader on uh, Conan O'Brien, the guitar player. I sat in with him uh, the other week. He's invited me to do a few more tunes with him, and I'm going to tell you about it. I, this is sort of a long tease, but if you're paying attention and you're listening, I'm going to be uh, jamming a few songs with Jimmy Vivino and the West Coast Blues Soul Rockers Saturday, March 24th at Big Mama's Rib Shack in Pasadena, California at 8 p.m. So if you're in the neighborhood, you want to see Jimmy, who's a, an, an amazing guitar player, he puts together a great combo, and a lot of big guys come down and play guitar with him. It's really something to see if you're into that stuff, if you're into that music, and I'm very uh, honored and flattered to be asked to do it. And uh, I did okay last time, so so I, I guess I'm, I'm telling people I'm going to do it this time. So anyways, that's happening. Uh, Bill Hader, who I always like to talk to, has a new HBO series, Barry. It's premiering Sunday, March 25th, and he stopped by to chat. This is me and Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point want to get the most out of what you read the foxed page is for you get it now wherever you get your podcasts bill are there any guys that you listen to like on records that like comedy that you ever go back and listen to Dana's Dana Gould's album Funhouse. <laughs> oh yeah, listen to that sometimes. Yeah, I remember when I was a PA and I was dry, I had a, I was a runner for this this like uh, this HBO show called If These Walls Could Talk Part Two. Wow, and I had to drive film elements around all day, and uh, and I listened. I had that tape and i just wore it out i just listened to it over danny gold yeah and when i did vincent price on snl i didn't know how to do vincent price so i was like i told dana like, I i'm doing your vincent price because i don't know how to do it because he had that whole bit about <laughs> vincent price picking up women right i couldn't help noticing you sitting over here why won't you look at me when i speak to you yeah that whole stuff. <laughs> and he made me and i i thought that was great <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, not, I mean, I kind of grab like little things here and there, but I don't know. In the shuffle? In my shuffle? Yeah, in the shuffle, like a Richard Pryor thing. Oh, that comes up on my shuffle. I'm always, I had one of those today. Schimmel, I've been listening to Robert Schimmel. Oh, yeah, uh, I haven't listened too much to Robert Schimmel. Yeah, he's, uh, he's very funny. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, again, you know, I don't know if it ages well or not, but it's still funny. Yeah, you also, it kind of has like good music. It takes you back to a specific time. Yeah. Like some Bill Hicks stuff is like that for me where it's like, if I have friends in the car, they're yeah. like, what the fuck are we listening to? Yeah. And I'm like, 
I don't know, man. When I was a sophomore in high school, this really <laughs> made me laugh because I was really angry. Yeah. And, you know. <laughs> oh, they can't they can't lock in. Yeah, I think they equate him to people who copied him. Oh yeah. Sometimes. And I go, no, no, no. He had like this humility that those people don't have. Like right. he would always kind of call you know, say, I play birthday parties and right. stuff like you know, kind of saying like, I know I'm a bit over the top. Over the top, and I'm a little angry, and I'm, like, there was an awareness there that I appreciate. Awareness that he could be interpreted as being preachy. Preachy, and, like, I know, I get to the fart jokes. I yeah, know yeah. You guys, you know, We're going to land on uh, Dick Joke Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't that the... <laughs> That's exactly. what we were working towards. We were working towards Dick, dick Joke Whoa, Island. Oh, that was yeah. parachuting in. Parachuting I can't remember into Dick Joke Island. I can't remember the imagery, but it was like it was his explanation for how the show would. Yeah, go. he's like, "Don't worry, we're we're yeah. building to Dick Joke Island." Yeah, he that thing where that woman goes, "You suck." You've yeah. seen that, right? Where, uh, yeah, I think so. Where, where he goes, "You suck," and he just fucking unleashes just oh, uh, holy in, hell on this woman oh uh, you mean in a real thing in a the real audience. thing in the audience yeah where, where he's goes, like he's so, like he goes, go to he goes go to a madonna concert go someplace good <laughs> and then afterwards he just goes god i really dug myself into a hole here <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of the thing is just him going Ah oh, man, what did I? Did and people see... are still now. The audience is shouting tons of shit out at him, just yeah. to bait him, and he's just going like, "Ah, what did I do?" What yeah, I... yeah. And that's why I go. That's the difference between him and some of the people who maybe copied his thing. Yeah, or... yeah. There was a certain type of comic at that time mm-hmm. who would get stuck in a Hicksy thing. Yeah, like yeah. I, I think I was uh, guilty of it for a few minutes, where you know you just kind of <laughs> lock into that. Yeah. And then you can't you can't carry it. Yeah. But there's nobody really pushing the envelope like that. I mean, I think Stanhope does, but there there there's not that many people that can live in that world. Yeah. I heard David Cross sometimes. Sometimes they would say that that was uh Fred's bit the Nicholas Fane thing he used to do on update was a bit of that uh, yeah. David Cross that can you I just I, I mean th- this happened today. <laughs> I mean, can, can you, can can you, I mean, I, I, I can't do it the way he <laughs> yeah, yeah. He would do Nicholas Fane with no cue cards or anything. And everyone, I go, are you doing David Cross? And he just kind of gave a look. He goes, there's a bunch of people. I know. He said he lumped me in there once. The character. <laughs> yeah, I was the flattered. Angry, angry guy. Yeah. yeah. Angry comic guy. Angry comic guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm not as much anymore. It comes back sometimes. It's been coming back lately. You think that's an important thing? Like the yeah. anger part of the comedy? Um, now we get into the... I think I think that a lot of guys I know are cranky. Yeah, some are angry, uh, but like the the nature, the angry comic. I don't know, like uh, you know, outwardly angry. Yeah, no, just like like for instance, I remember talking to Apatow about because I work at South Park sometimes. Yeah, and he goes, those guys are still good because they're still so angry. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, and I was like, huh, I wonder, yeah. And then I go in there, I'm like, are you guys angry? You guys seem pretty okay. And then, <laughs> and we'll talk about something like, oh no, yeah, I guess we're all still angry. I don't know. Well, I think that's it. I think there's a clarity to it that keeps you focused. Yeah, I mean, if things still like whether whether it affects your life or not, if you're driven to to be angry about injustice, yeah, it, it's yeah. probably a good thing. No. You know, whether it's really about injustice or not, if you <laughs> yeah. want to place your anger in that area, yeah. then yeah, I think that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, you're not an angry guy though, really. I guess not. No, I, I, I get, yeah, I mean, 
I, I'm like one of those people, I would get angry about a thing that, and then very quickly people go, oh, you really don't know what you're talking about. And then I go, oh, okay, yeah, I, yeah. I should calm down. And I'm just <laughs> repeating shit that my really smart friends just said, and they're calling me on it. And I'm like, well, I don't know, because yeah. I didn't ask that question to my friend. <laughs> That's your defense. So uh, I'll get back to you. I'll, let me ask him so I know what my opinion is. <laughs> my friend, I was that way. My friend Nate said that... Uh, yeah, we were. T- he said that if there were two guys that were really convincing about the the flat Earth thing, mm-hmm. he'd he'd go with it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I would be very like if someone's really because my my I don't know. I grew like my my dad was very much like a kind of a contrarian type yeah. person, and so anybody like that, I always just believe. You know, <laughs> right? I remember going to see the movie The Abyss. Yeah, and there was a part the water movie. Yeah, the water movie. <laughs> And there was a part where Ed Harris is having problems in his marriage and this metal door is about to shut. And if it shuts, he's going to drown. Yeah. And so he sticks his hand in the thing and it catches his hand. You're like, oh, God, his hand got caught. But no, his wedding ring stopped the door. Uh, so the water yeah. again saved his life. Yeah. And I'm nine years old watching this. And my dad's in the theater. And out loud, my dad goes, oh, get it? <laughs> <laughs> And for some reason, that just switched the circuits in my brain of, that's lame, don't ever do that. <laughs> Where everybody else was very emotionally moved by it, uh, I was just, get it. It was a weird moment where you go, oh, oh okay, that's stupid, don't do that. <laughs> like, he was like, oh, get it? Like, that's little, just like overkill. on the nose, yeah. didactic yeah, storytelling. The, the abyss, that's where the room uh, happens underwater, and there's, yeah, there's, there's some like, sort of there's living- like aliens in the water. And there, there, there's water arms and things. Yeah, there's a water face. It's uh, oh yeah, the water James, face. James Cameron movie. Actually, better than the movie is the making of the abyss because you know Ed Harris almost drowned and he did. Yeah, there's a great making of like a two hour long making of the abyss. Of the kind, abyss. It's kind of better than the movie. Yeah, just like what how hell it was making. Did that you movie. see that Jim Carrey doc? No, I haven't. You didn't watch it. No, I haven't. No, I I don't know why I haven't watched it. I think, I think I just. I think anything having to do with show business or anything having to do with people I kind of know or comedy, I tend to like go, uh, I'll, I'll watch that a little later. I'm going to watch the part nine of the world at war because <laughs> all these people are dead. <laughs> I don't know any of these people. <laughs> do you know what I mean? A thing comes on and now it's like I watch a thing and I'm like, oh, oh that that's guy. what McBrayer's doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why he didn't get back to me. Oh, he's been in Vancouver. <laughs> You know, we're, oh, Rudd, he's doing that. Oh, he was in fucking Berlin. That's yeah. why he didn't give out. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> I just saw that movie, Mute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah. That was wild. Rudd's not so cute in that. Rudd is insane in that. <laughs> yeah, he starts out cute, and then he it's not- He starts out cute, not not cute Rudd, very quick in that movie. Yeah, turns. I like it. I like watching Unhinged Rudd. He was in a play I saw called Grace that he was totally insane in and with Michael Shannon. And oh, really? They were- oh, Yeah, it was great. And he did him. it? He pulled it off? Yeah. Just seeing him nuts was great. How, yeah, I guess he, he doesn't do it as often as he should. I like it. I yeah. like watching him kind of play unhinged. Yeah. I, t- I texted him that. I said, I watched Mute. I like seeing you unhinged. He was like, oh, thanks. Like the cutest <laughs> reply parts. <You> know? <laughs> he's just so, he's like just the sweetest guy, you know? Is he in real life? Yeah, yeah. I've oh, never gosh. talked to him. Oh, he's the I've nicest never guy. never had him in here. I don't know why. 
Oh, you should totally have him in here. He's the best. I don't know why it hasn't happened. I, He's I one start of doing... my favorite people. He's such a such a good guy. Just a good guy. So, what have you been doing? You've been working on this berry thing for the last yeah, what, year for like. Well, no, I've been working on this. When did we pitch it? We pitched it before I shot Trainwreck. So, yeah, 2014. Have you been in a movie recently? Um, I don't know. I don't think it's not so. Not out yet. <laughs> no, I did a movie called Noel with Anna Kendrick, but that's not going to come out for a while. How and was then, that? It was fun. Yeah, yeah, it was a big Christmas movie. And I think um, it's going to come out around Christmas. Not weird if it didn't. <laughs> that's why I shouldn't run a studio. I'm like, let's bring this out in the summer, <laughs> like an asshole. <laughs> That's me in the meeting with a bunch of people. We're going to take it out in the summer like a bunch of dipshits. What do you think? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Who'd know. you create Barry with? Uh, Alec Berg. Who does, How do I know like, that guy? He did, well, he worked on Seinfeld forever. He did Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. And then uh past couple of years, he's done Silicon Valley. He's the big guy. Oh, he okay. And, he and Mike Judge do Silicon he's Valley. He's a showrunner guy. Yeah. And Very smart guy. Who's you guys came up with it together? Yeah, yeah. We just sat in a. I I got like a development deal with HBO, and then I they said you know turn something in, and so he and I, and we had the same agent. Yeah. And I go, I don't know anything about putting a show together, and they're oh we get together with Alec Berg, and so we sat at a diner and threw it. We we talked about one idea for a month and a half, and then one day we came in. And I just said, this is terrible. And he goes, yeah, I know. What was that idea? It was me playing a guy I went to high school with. And it was very, like, zero stakes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of, like, <laughs> it could be just an episode about him, you know, looking at his shoes or something. And <laughs> that'll be fun. It's and the we, no idea idea. The, the no idea idea. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we were putting a hat on a hat on a hat on a no idea idea. And so it just didn't. It, it went happened. nowhere. <laughs> and so, yeah, so then I, I kind of out of frustration was like, what if I played a hitman? And he went, oh, I fucking hate, I hate hitman. Just the word hitman is so played out. I don't like that. And yeah. Go, no, but it was like me, like me being, like me, like me, like yeah. dumb guy from Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then quickly we got the idea that maybe he, he went to an acting class. <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, maybe like acting class is kind of like therapy but it's like if you if you took the hitman world and made it you know it's all uh high stakes but no drama and then you he went to this kind of sh- shitty acting class in the valley that's yeah. all you know no stakes and high drama you know and <laughs> yeah. it was this funny world that he wanted to belong to this kind of waiting for guffman world but he came from this and if we can make the hitman world be very realistic uh-huh violence wise like not cool right you know not cool like like not like you know like the slow motion two guns throwing in the air or just, like, uh, and not not make the 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 deaths funny or not not like in a glib way so you're just sort of like raw violence raw violence in that <laughs> it fucks him up and then when i went we went into fit hbo we're like yeah you know like how an unforgiven like Clint Eastwood, it's like he kills people and it like really fucks him up and he, you know, has destroyed his soul. It'd be like if that guy took an acting class. <laughs> how was that room? How that? How they, they were like, okay. They, I mean, they, they were great, actually. They were like, no, we get it. No, we see it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you should do it that way. Like they were kind of like, we just were very clear. Like we want the violence to be very, uh, 
So violence real. that your character perpetrates, like when I shoot people or you know strangle people, don't make it funny. Like so, you're not a sympathetic thing. guy, really. No, I think he's a confused guy. He's like an ex-marine who's kind of confused and. You know, the way Alec always described it, he's like, it's like you did all this training in the Marines for something good. So it'd be like if there was like a someone who trained in dance, like a ballerina yeah. or something, who then to make money on hard times decides to strip, uh-huh. you know? Right. So it's like on hard times to make money, you, you do contract killing, but you hate it and you want to get out of it, but you're really good at it. But you you're a sociopath. Basically, he's figuring that out. He doesn't think he is. <laughs> that's a big question of like, is he a good person or is he a bad person? So does he justify? Is there scenes where he justifies what he does because the person he's killing is bad? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's oh. that. Steven Root is plays my kind of uh, you know hitman agent guy or whatever. This guy, your manager, with, my manager. Yeah. And that's, you know, he's like, no, this guy's a bad guy. And I go, but I met him and he seems really nice. And it's like, no, 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 no. You don't, don't meet these people. Like, you just have to go do it, you know. And, um, and Henry Winkler is in it. He plays my, uh, the acting coach. Oh, really? <laughs> so it was very funny. Like, cause Henry, have you met Henry? Yeah. Great he's guy. He's like the sweetest guy in the world. Yeah. Oh, hello. <laughs> I don't know you, but can I give you a hug? You know, he's that yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's so sweet. And then he plays a, you know, the first scene he shot was him yelling at an a, at this a, at an actress played by Sarah Goldberg. She's amazing in the show, and um, and uh, and we went, Henry, you got to really go at her, you know, take yeah. three or four. I was like, Henry, you got to really yell at her, yeah. you know. And he goes, Oh, let me get this straight. So this man. <laughs> is an asshole. <laughs> and I said, yes, Henry. And he went, got it. And then he fucking unleashed this thing at this poor woman where she really started crying. And we all were like, whoa, I had no idea that guy was in there, you know? So he's, he, it's like Rudd and mute, you know? These yeah. nice guys get to... He's got it in there. He's got it in there. We all have it in there someplace. Sure. Yeah. He made her cry for real? Yeah. Well, she was an amazing actress, but he really went out. Yeah. It's in, uh... Did you use that take? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But she was, I think, you know, she was in the scene. I don't think she was right, like, Henry, right. why are you making me cry? Right, right yeah, yeah. She yeah. was, sure. she, she's this amazing actor it who acted, was kind of it, in it the was, scene. It and was acted she, correctly. Yeah, she was listening and reacting in yeah. character, and it went great. What has she been in? She, Sarah Goldberg, was in a show called Hindsight, which was on VH1, but she's mostly known for, uh, she's nominated for an Olivier Award for Clybourne Park, a lot of Broadway, a lot of theater. Oh, yeah? But she's amazing. She was one of those people like came in and just auditioned, and we all were like, uh, "How are you? <laughs> not not a ma- massive movie star right now? <laughs> are we just the luckiest people on earth right now? You know, yeah, one yeah. of those things where, uh, you know, I'm the casting director is like, don't hire her in the room, and I'm like, but she can't leave because someone's going to see her <laughs> and put her in something. You know? Oh, really? Yeah, is that she, like... yeah she was that thing. Don't know? hire her. Please in the room. don't hire her in the room. Yeah, it was that thing where. She <laughs> saw me get really excited because I just thought she was great. And she's like, Bill, you got to like, you know, let it sit for 24 hours. You can't just say you got the part after one read. And I'm like, but she's perfect. Yeah. And you were right. I was right. Uh, and I directed the first three and then. Is that a first people. for you? Yeah. That was a thing I always wanted to do actually before comedy or any of that stuff was direct and write and stuff. Were you able to really sink into it directing yourself? Yeah, it was a bit tough. Have you ever done anything? Yeah, like that? I did. I did a couple of episodes of my show. Direct. That... It was hard because like I don't know that I got the full experience. 
Yeah. Because you're running back to check. You're running back yeah. to watch. Got You're leaning on your DP a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, you're also kind of, in my experience, it was like the there was one day where I didn't have to act. And I felt like that was the day where I was really getting right. to direct. You can, you can actually do the directing thing. Yeah. Sarah Goldberg told me where she said it was very hard because we'd be in a scene and then she didn't know if I was reacting as a character or as a director because I'd make a sour face and she's like, oh, he hates what I'm doing. <laughs> or, oh, oh, is that all right? You know, like it just yeah. put the other actors in their heads. You yeah. Know? Right. And um, yeah, I found it tricky, but I mean, it, how did it feel for you? I liked it after I got used to it, but it was tricky. It was kind of like, um, and we photo boarded everything first. So I kind of really did a ton of prep on it. So I was able to kind of like hand, really? hand off everything. Like here are the shots, everybody. Now I'm going to act and kind of watch the actors. And Yeah. And, then and did was, you have the playback machine? Yeah, but the nice thing is I had Alec Berg there, and when he directed episodes, I was there, so it was this nice thing of me walking back to Alec going, was that all right? Did, am I, am yeah. I playing? Because he's the only other person that knows the show as well as I do, what right. we're going for. Right. So, and he he's a he's great, so he could go, one time he was like, me and Stephen Root did a take, and he goes, that was barely human. <laughs> And I was like, all right, let's go for another take. Oh, that, <laughs> like, that's, that's a bad thing? Yeah, he's like, I don't even think that was a conversation. It didn't even like mimic human behavior. <laughs> it was like two guys trying to remember lines. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. like, that was barely human. We were like, got it. All right, let's uh, let's try this again. You know? Oh, that's wild. Yeah, because like if you're like, it, it, you can get up in your head, right? Oh, my gosh, totally. I totally get in my head, and then it's it's a lot of it's just having to memorize it and then just like throw it away, you know. Yeah, well, that's like when you're in every scene. When I was doing my show, like it, I had to cram my head full all the time. Yeah, and you can't, you know, you just you got to do it when you get there. No, it's yeah, <laughs> you either can do it or you can't. Well, on my first day of sh- directing, I sat down for the pilot of the show, and I realized I didn't even thought about how I was going to play Barry. I didn't even thought about how I was going to play the character. Right. So I just I just sat there. The whole There's a whole scene in the first episode where I barely, barely say anything because I'm just nodding and listening because <laughs> I was just cutting my dialogue because I was like, I don't fucking know how to play the guy or is it this or it's that because yeah. I hadn't thought about it. I've been so preoccupied right. with creating it yeah creating everything it. set up yeah does that guy have the right shirt on does this person have the right thing? you know all that stuff but you hadn't thought about how you were going to play it for the series for the series i i sat down and on the first day was like wait a minute how the fuck do i play this you know you gotta and, make the guy up yeah i know and and then uh after a couple of takes figured it out I was yeah like, okay yeah this this seems right is it based on anybody no it's um, no, and and the character changes throughout, which is interesting. But it it is, you know, the the kind of um, it's not based on anybody emotionally. It's kind of I I thought about when I first got Saturday Night Live, this idea of being at a a community of people that you really wanted to be a part of. And yeah, the feeling of like, man, I don't want to get fired. Right, right, yeah. I want these people to. I I, I so badly want to hang with this group yeah <laughs> and those feelings and yeah he, he gets that when he meets his acting class this like how do i fit in and yeah what do i wear and <laughs> i'll just shut up and not say much and right you know and and 
and that's totally how I felt when I got to the show. So it was, it was a bit of that stuff. You oh, know? good. And uh, you like how they came out? I love how they come. They came out. I the nice thing about it that people have said who saw it was that there were the two the things I've heard that made me happy were they go that is not at all what I thought it was going to be. They're like that is very dark and very uh, kind of emotional and stuff. And then uh, and also it has a real kind of. N- narrative propulsion to it where after each you know what i mean like like after each episode you're like oh fuck you know what's gonna happen next which cliffhangers uh, at the end of it yeah very cliffhangery type thing which i i uh is root funny or serious in this one he's really funny okay (laughs) he's kind of like those guys from tulsa that i grew up around oh really reminds me of like yeah guys used to work for my dad or something he's just kind of like a guy who plays he's a florida guy isn't he yeah yeah but he has such a midwestern vibe about him but he's one of the best actors i've ever worked with he and and sarah goldberg specifically were people that when i worked with them i i I don't know if you've had this experience you go oh shit i really gotta be on my i have are you kidding i'm I'm barely an actor i have that all the time (laughs) I'm doing all my scenes with Alice and Brie and Betty Gilpin. I'm like, oh, oh my, my God, God, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, I had that on this where I'm like, oh, man. You know, or Sarah Goldberg come over. She goes, I was working on this last night, and I think. And I go, you were working on it? What do you mean you were working on it last night? Like, learning your lines? She's like, no, I know the lines. But I was thinking in this moment, it was like, what? <laughs> you did what? Uh, okay, whatever, nerd. <laughs> like, I was such a loser on that. And then it was so when you're in scenes with these oh, people who've done, you know, that kind of layered up Shakespeare yeah, and yeah. Ibsen and all this stuff, yeah. I'm like, oh, geez, I gotta. You can watch them acting. I, yeah, I know. I'm like, I, I, I need cue cards just to know what I'm supposed to say. Yeah. So uh, it is something to watch, uh, you know, really experienced trained actors do the oh thing oh my god I, but you but you you're very good at uh getting into character and yeah, doing I'm things like i mean, doing it maybe yeah. you're just being hard on yourself i'm always hard on myself <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's how i keep uh, but you don't feel forward. like i i think it's just that you judge yourself against where they came from maybe you know what i think it is is that you go i wish i had that discipline you know right i've always been that way where i just go anything yeah I'll go, God, I wish I had the discipline to fucking sit down and write that. You know what I mean? You know, and I think I get hard on myself in that way. And it, I mean, that's school, that's everything, you know? I mean, at some point you have to accept that, you know, your process is working. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, no, you sound like a millennial say that to me. John Millennial will be like, I don't know. He's like, Bill, you're doing fine. I, I don't really need to hear about this anymore. <laughs> like, I just think, uh, uh-huh. You're very responsible. Yeah. Just relax. <laughs> it's it's weird that, your bra- that I have a brain like that, too, where it's just, and I mean, I, my success is what it is, but... Oh, but what, but however I got here, it's how I got here. It's not the easiest way to do it, being you know what, however you know, when you don't think you're working hard enough, or you think there's your things uh, that you're being irresponsible, or that you should put more effort into. But like a lot of times, like waiting till the last minute, yeah, is is that's how you get into the thing. Totally, yeah. And it's exhausting. That, it's exhausting and terrifying, but that terror sometimes propels you to yeah do a good thing, yeah. I always, yeah, I think it was always a, a, a feeling of um, of just, you know, when I watched them 
act or them, pref- yeah. you know, th- that preparation or whatever going like, oh man, I got to really step up my game. And, and it's more of just a pressure on myself to like yeah. them because yeah. not in any sort of competitive way, but sure. in a good way. It was sure. the same thing at SNL. When they make you better. A, yeah. It's like when Marty Short or Steve Martin would come and host SNL, you were just like, oh Jesus, <laughs> you know, I remember one time Marty Short, I tried to like... I think I tried to improvise something or we add a line and we hadn't told him yet, but yeah. it was this sketch where I was uh, called Broadway Sizzle. Yeah. And I was playing like this Harvey Firestein type host of the show and 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 he had just sang a song and I go, How old are you? And he says, I'm sixteen. <laughs> And I, the line was, I don't know if I improvised it or if they gave it to me. They probably gave it to me without him knowing. I go, are you wearing makeup? <laughs> and immediately Marty Short goes, just street stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in such a like, oh, right, you're Martin Short. I need to just fucking check myself. <laughs> it was so fast. I just went, oh, my God. <laughs> just street stuff. Just street stuff. And I just went, that's the funniest thing I'd ever heard. And, uh, I, I mean. Out of nowhere. So, out of nowhere. Just street stuff. Like, like I haven't gotten, I haven't put in the period on my the sentence yet. And he was, boom, right back at me. And you just go, right. Okay, that's why you just, you just stay in your lane, man. <laughs> Don't fuck her with this. You felt like you'd lost the, 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 the battle there? No, not a battle, but just. You know, you're trying to like mess yeah. around with right, them, right, and then right. you're like, they're like, boosh. <laughs> they just, they're a bomb, and you go, oh fuck, I need to just say the words and not get in the way. In, in that moment, you knew it. You're, oh, I knew it. I was like, oh, I'm gonna like really play around with. Yeah, we can do some fun. Short. We're, We're gonna, gonna riff fun. it up. We're gonna like... riff it up. Oh, you're a genius. <laughs> I'm gonna stop. <laughs> I'm gonna was, stop. That um, was all of it. I, 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 that was the only thing I had, and clearly it wasn't very good. And yeah, I was, yeah. It was, uh, did, did he? Did you say anything after? He just let it go. Oh, or? oh no, no. It was the greatest thing. I was laughing. I started laughing. I was. Oh, you like, did. Oh, I was like, that's the funniest. He's one of the greatest guys of all time. Yeah, the hardest I've ever laughed. He makes me laugh more than anybody. <laughs> I'm he's friends so quick. with him. Just so quick, but just very sweet and yeah. very. Uh, uh, I, I, yeah, just he's another guy that hasn't been in here. Yeah, oh my god, I think Marty we've Short, tried one we of got, the greatest I mean, so, guys in the world. Yeah, I know he is. Oh, we got to get who's he's, the other one we were talking about? Oh, Paul Rudd, Rudd. Paul Rudd, Martin, Martin Short. Short. Yeah, Martin Short. He's just he's so insanely funny. He said to Paul Rudd, you know, remember when Kathy Lee Gifford did that awful thing with him where Kathy Lee Gifford asked him about his wife and she goes, You've been married three years, and blah blah blah. Yeah. And what happened? What, and Martin Short's wife had passed away. Oh, and she didn't know it or something. Yeah. And so, but to his credit, Martin Short didn't say anything to her. He went, "Oh, it's because I'm so cute." And then at commercial break, he went, "Hey, just so you know, my wife passed away three years ago, and she felt terrible." And I think Rudd sent him an email. Hey, I'm so sorry about that Kathleen Gifford thing. And Martin Short wrote back, "I think she thought it was a rerun." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just so funny. It's so funny. It's <laughs> just so fast. But yeah, his book's amazing, I must say. It's such a great it's book. It's good. And oh, when did yeah. that come out? That came out a couple of years ago. It's phenomenal. That's like one of my favorite yeah? his autobiographies. Yeah. I've actually read it and I've listened to it. And you guys are friends in the world? We're friends in the world. Yeah. He's just, he's like a, 
great example of how you should be in this business. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. He's just such a just such a happy guy. Yeah. It just it's never lost on him of like, can you fucking believe we get to do this for a living? Right. You know what yeah, I yeah. mean? That yeah, you know, yeah. You know. Oh, that's good. Yeah, he's very cool. I gotta get more of that. Yeah, I know. That's why I hang out with him. Where I'm like, oh right, yeah, you should be like that. Yeah, you yeah. Know? We should be grateful, and it's uh, fun Christmas, to entertain people. He has these Christmas parties, and I went to one. I've, I've been to a couple of them, and one time it was him and the whole SCTV, Catherine O'Hara yeah. and Eugene Levy, yeah. and Dave Thomas, and everybody, Andrea Martin, uh huh. And they put on the SCTV Christmas special, and they all just sat and watched it, like, oh my god, they're so and so, and they're so and so, and me and. You know, other people, I mean, I was just like your idols <laughs> yeah, right, watching yeah. them, you know, yeah, and they were so normal, sweet younger people. Selves. But they were just nice yeah. people. They yeah. were, you know, they're Canadian. What are you yeah, yeah Canadians. Canadians. <laughs> Very pleasant. <laughs> Very pleasant. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well, it was good seeing you. Good seeing you, Congrats man. on the new show. My my uh, my girlfriend watched the uh, trailer and she's excited about it. That's oh, a that's good, good. That's a good sign. That's a successful trailer. Oh, good. She's like, that, that looks funny. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, we'll see. All right. Thanks, buddy. That was Bill Hader. Bill Hader. He's so funny. Sweet guy. Decent dude. Uh, Barry, his new HBO show premieres Sunday, March 25th. So listen, folks. uh, Before we get to Nell, I'm like, I'm a nutbag, man. I'm an obsessive, compulsive nut job. I was doing comedy last night. I did three sets at the comedy store. I wore one of my favorite shirts, my Filson sort of mustardy, rust-colored flannel shirt. And I'm a guy who carries a notebook and pens. So I stuck a pen in my pocket and I didn't close it. So now there's a fucking ink spot that I can't get out. I have many shirts that have the same markings, but I didn't want it for this shirt. I didn't want it for this shirt. I wanted this shirt to stay pristine. I love this shirt i rarely wear it but it looks so fucking good and i fucked it up with a goddamn pen and i didn't know what to do i dabbed it with alcohol it was too late i washed it i used the uh, oxy whatever on it and i washed it nothing it didn't come out it's just a spot of just a signifier of stupidity of a, what am i can't i can't get a pocket protector right and i knew that i might do it and i didn't know what to do so i went to the internet and i searched for that shirt which has been out of circulation for many years because nobody really likes the color but me i'm thinking and that turned out to be true because i found one on ebay brand new for like half price with the tag still on so that's where my obsession led me i had to replace that shirt so now now i'll have two but knowing me the one with the ink spot that will be disappeared as if it never happened it will be goodwilled it will be it will be taken away taken away in a bag that's that's what happens that's revisionism but but then i'll have then i'll have the new shirt and, and I'll feel just as good. Nell Scovell has written for a lot of great shows, and, and she's been around a long time, and she's uh, hammered, hammered through all the all-male you know, writing rooms and, and sort of had quite a journey, and her new memoir sort of talks about it all. It's called Just the Funny Parts. It's available in stores tomorrow. You can pre-order it now, and this is me talking to Nell Scovell. Why don't be nervous? <laughs> I read your book. I know I met you at a people's houses Larry's. who I like. Okay, Larry, I don't. I didn't really know, but you know, I know. Um, you know, Drew Friedman. 
who I like a lot. And then, like, you know, there was people up there that I knew. I usually don't go to those things. And I wouldn't have never met, met you or known you. It was one of those weird things. And you just came right up to me. I know. But if you read the book, we have so many friends I in know, common. I, I, I right? know. Right? Isn't yeah. it weird we never met? But you're not so much a TV guy. I'm not a TV guy. I'm not really a writer guy. You know, but I do. And I've done things with uh, people you know. But the thing I like about the book, like, because I really don't usually finish books because I also don't like to do it. We're not taping yet. Right? Yeah, we are. But, <laughs> but don't worry about it. Relax, will you? The the thing that uh, I I don't, the reason I don't usually read the books is because then I'll lead you into, you know, like I'll know this stuff too well. And then the conversation becomes different. But I liked the book so much that I just kept reading it because it was my oh. business. And, uh, you know, I knew people and I liked your story. And, uh, you know, I like reading about show business but I had not read, you know, obviously you know, where this is going in terms of your plight and and privilege and yeah. uh, and and career as a woman in this game, in this horrible racket that we all have a love hate relationship with. I thought it was very you know uh, human and compelling, and also it was uh, helpful. I mean, you go out of your way in this book to tell your story as a woman in show business, particular you know specifically writing and directing, but you do give pointers. Like along the way, you do say like, the, you know, you do lay things out for people who might want to get in show business for whatever fucking reason. Well, I didn't want it to be prescriptive. I right. didn't want it to be a how-to book. Right. And I don't think there's one path to right. breaking in. Yeah. Um, you know, my big suggestion is just to write a lot <laughs> yeah. if you want to be a writer. Sure. There's a quote from a, my friend Amy Hone the only way to move forward creatively yeah. is to allow yourself to be judged. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Right. And and because it's not what you start and it's not even what you finish. Right. It's what you put out there right. for the world to see. And because what you have in your head might not be what you're relating to the audience. And you need the audience. Sure. As a writer. Right. And so, and certainly, when you're doing specifically writing for audiences, it would yes. help. But but early on, you know, I, I like that there was never a period in your life where you, you know it was a uh, you know I don't care what anybody thinks of this it, in the sense that you know some people who write fiction you know write you know they're purists and they're not writing for anybody but themselves or the art of it. Whereas a lot of the writing that you did, it seems you know had to hit home. It had to you know like when you were started out when you were a sports writer. I mean, you had to grab people. Right. Well, there, there's that great quote that before you can be a writer, you have to notice something. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> you know, so you figure out, well, what am I noticing that others are noticing? And what am I noticing that others aren't noticing? Right, right. Yeah. And that's the better part, the not noticing. Yeah. And I always, I started as a journalist and have kept doing that throughout my TV career, mostly because <laughs> I always thought the TV career could go away at any moment. I can. Yeah, <laughs> it did. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it's all sort of heartbreaking. This sort of, uh, you know, the arc of it. But yeah, let's let's go let's go back because um, it's interesting that you like even back in college. I mean, where where were you born? In Newton, Massachusetts. You were born in Newton. Yeah. So you're always there. Your your whole family ended up in Massachusetts. There and New Hampshire, uh -huh. which 
is sort of interesting because I used to spend three months a year in New Hampshire, and that's where Sarah Silverman's, Silverman's from. from sure, too. yeah, yeah. So maybe there's something in the water. And Sandler too. Sandler. Yeah, uh, I mean, I know I I've been to Sarah's house, her childhood house, Manchester. Yeah, yeah Manchester. Yeah, because we did a gig together. I went over there. She and- played me on the Larry Sanders show. They, oh, yeah. They did an episode where a female writer comes in, and it was written by a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, and she kind of based it on me. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. So you've known her actively for I a long time? I don't know her. Oh, you don't know her? No. You never met Sarah. You've met her. I've met her. But you don't know her. I do not know her. Huh. Isn't that odd? Why don't you know her? <laughs> well, I, I don't know that many performers. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, writers and... Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, some, everyone's working so hard, right? That's if, true. Unless you're working on a show with them. Yeah. And it's hard to, you know, maintain friendships or relationships in this business, really. I guess it's hard for anybody because you're busy and you only have a couple of good friends in any lifetime, really, right? What, what's surprising to me is I thought the people I was friends with yeah. in my 30s, right. I would be friends with forever. Yeah. And that didn't work out. <laughs> None of them? No, some of no, them, but not yeah. all of them. And I would have thought by 30, you're kind of fully formed. Yeah. But, you know, then they, they marry people or yeah, and you, you marry someone. Right. And then they drift away. But so like growing up in Newton, like I did time in in, in the Boston, Boston area. Yeah. Like I know, you know, I know some of those, I know a lot of those areas. You know, I, I started doing comedy in Boston. But uh, so how, how many kids, there was a lot of kids in your family, right? Right. So there were five. Yeah. And I'm the third girl and the middle child. So it's very, you know, I'm funny. Pay attention to me. Right. So my family was really bookish. Yeah. We didn't watch a lot of TV. Uh-huh. You know, the, the expectation was you would be a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, there was no one in my family in the entertainment business. Sure. But everyone was funny. Right. And my dad's really funny. My aunts are hilarious. My... um. My sister was once on the couch reading Little Women, uh-huh. and my Aunt Pinky walked by her, tapped her on the shoulder, and said, don't get too attached to Beth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Clever. Uh, very clever. Yeah. And my Aunt Jane would tell dirty jokes, uh-huh. which was amazing when you're a kid. Yeah. Um, sure. It's great to have that one you know, uh, uh, sort of slightly uh, wrong aunt or yeah. uncle. <laughs> you well, need them. I mean, it's a role model. Sure. And, and, she got really positive attention, too, for being funny. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really great for me to see. Um, and then it was... So I'm a couple of years older than you. Yeah. I was born um, in 1960. Right. And so I was just in this sweet spot. I get to high school and Saturday Night Live comes on and Monty Python starts airing. Right. I was a little younger, right. In Boston. Yeah. So you were more cognizant. I was in junior high. You know, I remember I watched the first season of SNL pretty religiously, but it must have been different, you know, as a high school student when those kind of feelings and thoughts are starting to happen. Right. And everyone, you're memorizing the bits sure. and, and saying them the next day. Oh, and another amazing thing yeah. that was just the luck of being born when I was born is if you were born after, let's say, 1975, yeah. you didn't have something that I did which was I got to watch a late-night female TV host. Joan Rivers right. was guest hosting, guest hosting Carson for years. Sure. I always thought she was way funnier than Johnny. She, yeah. She talked a little like my aunt. Right, sure, yeah. And, 
and so that also like was in my psyche. So, so what compels you to, uh, you know, to to sort of pursue this? Like, so you're watching all these things that we watched when we were kids. And Monty the Marx Python. Brothers. And See, I, Marx Brothers must have been. You must have got that from your dad or from an aunt or where did you get? Where did you come? Channel Thirty Eight and Channel Fifty Six. Right, yeah, that's right in the East Coast, <laughs> right? And in Jersey, it was like Channel Eleven. Um, yeah, I mean, I see that stuff when I was at my grandparents, but I don't remember getting it in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh. So in high school, did you write? Yes, but I was um, on the school newspaper yeah. and, and did... Uh, but what made you want to write? I mean, what was that moment, you know, when you decided that this was something you could do? Well, it was when I realized I couldn't do anything else. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, I went into um, college thinking yeah. I was pre-med. Um, I'd always been good at math and sciences in high school, yeah. and I just kind of hit that conceptual wall of calculus yeah. and and organic yeah. chemistry. Yeah, and that was you couldn't get through that. Yeah, it was too hard. Oh, and then so when I was in college, there was this big push to major in East Asian studies because really? China was the awakening giant. Yeah. Um, so I thought, all right, well, I'll be an East Asian studies major. And I took Chinese, which <laughs> was the hardest thing. <laughs> it's tonal. And I'm good at languages. I've, I've, I know Spanish and French, and I've studied Russian. But Chinese took me down hard. And one day I come back. Because there's no structure to it, really, in the same way. Well, you have to hear the different tones. Right. And That's not your bag? So not, what were you saying? What were you gonna say? I'm not a musician. Right. I, so... I come back and my roommate, um, who was an English major, was like reading Mill on the Floss. Uh -huh. And I just have this like freak out. Like, I speak English. I speak English very well. Why aren't I an English major? Um, and so I switched. Oh, that was it. <laughs> that was it. Now, did, you went to Harvard for your whole undergrad? Yes. Yeah. So that was, you didn't, it's it's a gr obviously a great school, but you actually didn't have to leave town. You just, you just, I know. <laughs> you just kind of went across the river. And I had um, three siblings there, too. So you guys were all uh, yeah. hardworking, good students. We were type A, thank yeah, you. Yeah, which is, must have made your family very happy. Um, yeah, like when, did you see Conan O'Brien Can't Stop, the, the documentary? I, I think, think it's oh, always yeah, but, funny when you yeah. take like a type A personality. Right. And instead of putting it in investment banking, you yeah. put it in comedy. <laughs> it's a bit much, huh? It's, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just that's what, well. That's what The Simpsons is. The Simpsons that's feels right. yeah, that that is what that looks like in its purest form. I think that's fair. <laughs> you know, I you know, I do, I've been doing Conan show for years since the beginning, and uh, it's just he definitely works. Uh, he works twice as hard. Yeah. As uh, as uh, someone with a more natural timing, it's a, it's a very funny thing to watch him because I, I I don't I don't know that this is an insult necessarily, but but like when he needs to save a beat, you, you know, like if yeah. you're if you're tanking on the couch, you know, and he's got to step in because you know you, you, to lift the segment, yeah, he you, he's got to go on a roller coaster. Like it's always going to be like <laughs> whoa, you know. Well, see, I. I agree he's working hard, and, and but here's how I see it. So my very first job in TV was on a short-lived show on Fox called yeah. The Wilton North Report. Yeah. Um, and to give you an idea of how bad this show was, when I was working on the book, we had a call and asked permission to use a photo from it. Yeah. They, they have 
nothing in their data banks about the Wilton North report. Fox, oh, yeah. To Fox, the show never existed. They have wiped it from their corporate memory. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. I've been on a show like that. I, I hosted a game show once. There's no evidence of it anymore for VH1. Oh, that's funny. No, it's great. So, um, so Wilton North report, this terrible, terrible show. And um, the one good thing I got out of it was the two guys in the office next to me who became my best friends out yeah. here were um greg daniels and conan o'brien yeah and you know we just spent stupid amounts of time together like you do in your 20s but one of my favorite conan stories is um i had a friend visiting me and she's really pretty and you could see we were sitting on our office we were right on the same hallway and conan starts walking down one that day and he's singing Oh, I'm the greatest lover in the world. All the ladies love to... Oh, Lynn, Nell, sorry. Didn't know you were in there. And what I love is Conan was Conan for an audience of two. Yeah, yeah. He's always been that way. Yeah. I was at a um, birthday party once. It was someone's 30th birthday and Conan was there and they were op opening everyone's packages and... He opens Conan, Conan's card, and he laughs really hard. And, of course, Conan's so funny, right? Right. And everyone's like, what did he say? And he just passes it to the next person who opens it and laughs. And finally it gets to me, and I open it, and it says, um, please throw back your head and laugh when you read this. Yes, I'm pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, you know, he's very funny. You know, yeah, I, I, I liked seeing him sort of evolve and grow. I mean, I, did, I started doing his show when I was in 96, so yeah. a couple of years in, you know, and he was tangibly <laughs> panicked. And uh, But he, you know, he figured it out. Yeah. I think that's what Harvard people do. They figure <laughs> it out. They just keep blasting away. <laughs> but but you didn't start writing comedy. You, didn't do, you weren't in the Lampoon. You didn't go to- No, I was- um terrified by the lampoon i went to one comp meeting and what does that scared mean the me comp off. meeting well you because it's harvard you can't just sign up to do something like yeah. you should be able to do because you're interested you you've got to compete oh. to get on the board so i went to this comp meeting and they talked about how many pieces you had to write i think it was eight pieces but the process was they would throw it on the ground and people would write comments on the back that others could read. It sounded like it had real humiliation potential. Right. It's sort of a baptism in fire thing, you know? Right. And I was happy writing sports for the Crimson. So that's what you ended up doing. Yeah. So, so you you bail on humor. Now, was Conan there at the time? Did you know Conan in college? Was He, he was uh, a freshman when I was a senior. Okay. But you didn't know each other? No. So you decided to, to, to focus on writing... For the paper, I did, and and um, it's you know my I was a associate sports editor, and uh -huh. the sports editor was Jeff Tubin. Yeah, oh we really? All, yeah, we all know as a the lawyer, right? Anal analyst, isn't he a lawyer? Yeah, but well, he went to law school, but he writes. He wrote the OJ book, right? Yeah, wrote, I know, I know. He's on yeah. CNN all the time. Yeah, but he was a sports guy. <laughs> he was, and he's one of the most entertaining people on the planet. Oh yeah, yeah, he's great. And then senior year. I, I went pro. I got hired by the Boston Globe to cover high school sports. That's right. That's when you were mentioning all these towns that I, I had found myself in performing one-nighters of comedy. 
Marblehead and sure. Bourne and all, sure, yeah. I don't know where Bourne is, but I know where Marblehead is. I know where Fall River is. I know where um, Lemonster is. And how I'm, to pronounce it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Saugus. 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 <laughs> yeah, I used to work in Saugus. <laughs> a few gigs out there on Route One. <laughs> I know that area. I know those places. Yeah, I was all over that town. But so you were doing that. You were running around covering high school sports. High school football. And this was pre-climate change. So I was freezing my ass off. Um, yeah. And I always liked working. I I liked earning a paycheck. I That gave me a sense of value and sure. worth. And um, I could not get out of college fast enough and, and just start it's also fun to get out in the world and have that experience of driving places and covering things and seeing different towns and how different people sort of live. And New England is full of uh, colorful characters. Yeah, but they don't play sports. So when you ask things like, um, you know, can you talk to me about the game? And they say, we said we were going to do it and we did it. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Thank you for your comment. <laughs> and I was used to, like the Harvard coaches are all erudite and they would quote Thucydides. And, and so, you know, after after covering high school sports, I kind of thought maybe I don't want to do this forever. Well, sure. But what's the trick to it? I mean, what, were the, what was the trick that you learned? I mean, covering sports, it sort of you carried with you for your life as a writer. I mean, you know, there was, you know, you had to, you know, there is a style to it. I'm not a sports yeah, yeah, guy, yeah. but like there is something you got to do. Right. I mean, it's, it's finding the emotion and in the, so it's not just a numbers game. Right. And then it's finding the comedy. So the, you know, the sports lead is, is you're allowed to make jokes, um, in a right. way that you can't in a regular news story. Right. I tell this story in the in um, just the funny parts about how I was covering um, Harvard men's track and they were at a big regional tournament. And after the first day, they were tied for second. And I just thought like the comedy gods had given me this lead, which was if a tie for first is like kissing your sister, yeah. then a tie for second is like French kissing her. <laughs> Yeah, and I turn it in, and the editor's like, "We can't run this. <laughs> this is offensive." And that's when, you know, I say that, um, you know, if you're in comedy and you've never offended anyone, then you haven't gone far enough. And yeah. if you always offend people, then you're an asshole yeah, or a professional comedian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and I moved to New York, and I mean, the big lucky break for me was Spy Magazine came along just as I was entering the, the workforce. Yeah, that was, um, that changed the entire culture, I think, Spy Magazine. I mean, I re what year was that? 86? Yeah. Like, I mean, that, that was like the cutting edge sort of post-Lampoon satire magazine. Right, and it, w it was really um, taking the air out of, of the puffed-up balloons of the culture. It was a specific, yeah, it had an agenda to, to, to level the rich and snooty. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, our favorite short-fingered vulgarian, I mean, that came from Spy. Mm -hmm. um, you guys picked on him pretty heavy back in the day. Very heavy. And, <laughs> by the way, he had other, like, joke names. There was... Um, Queensborn failed casino operator, uh -huh. but that didn't catch on. Um, <laughs> too wordy. <laughs> too, <laughs> mm -hmm. I always kind of liked that one. Yeah, failed casino operator. Sure. Uh, so spy was was great, and then 
Um, what did you do for Spy exactly? I I was the first reporter they hired, and um, I wrote a piece called "Too Rich and Too Thin" about these right. society women who were both. Uh, and one of my favorite pieces was I got this idea to stand in front of Lincoln Center yeah. at like quarter of eight and ask people, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I, I took down how many gave me the punchline, how many gave me directions, yeah. how many gave me wrong directions, and one person who gave me the wrong punchline and said, study, study, study. <laughs> right. So then I got hired away by Vanity Fair. Tina Brown called me, offered me more money than I ever thought I would ever make in my whole life. Uh Uh-huh. And so I was working at Vanity Fair, and I was writing, she would call them Nell things, which were mostly visual um, or short pieces with a visual component. And then one day I bumped into an old spy editor who said to me, "Um, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for TV. And and that truly was the first time it ever occurred to me. Really, you never thought about SNL as a as a writer's show. You never thought about any of that uh, about TV as a as an occupation. No, I thought about like movie writing, right. screenwriting. Sure, you heard about that. Yeah, yeah, but not TV writing. Not TV. I guess writing. I guess that makes sense. Like you know, because the, the in the the arc of the book is really in dealing. Like I guess the the sort of boys club nature of things. You you. You did see in in college and at the sports writing for sports, I right. would imagine. But when did it start to you know really start to affect you? When did you start to be aware of it in a way that you know you you realized it was a liability or uh, that you had to fight uh, just being a woman? Well, I thought I thought we had fixed equality when I got out of college in the. <laughs> You know, early eighties. I really did. And I thought, you know, Gloria Steinem had led the fight and Everything was good. Everything was good. And you know, I read the book Backlash and was like, Okay, that's happening to some people. Mm -hmm. So I I didn't go into it thinking my gender would either help or hurt me. Right. Into Uh, into uh, writing. I I do remember though on that first job at Wilton North Report. After it got canceled, I was sitting with Greg and Conan and these two other guys, and we were talking about, like, what should we do next and what shows. And one of the other guys, this guy Phil, said to me, well, you're lucky, Nell. And I said, why am I lucky? And he said, well, every show's looking for a woman. And I said, a woman and nine guys. How does that make me lucky? Yeah. So even, I guess back then, I sort of understood that the odds were not in your favor. Yeah, if you are female. Sure. So, so, and and that, by the way, that's the perception from men is I was lucky. Yeah. Oh, There's because, a slot. So if I can get that slot, right? I'm it's good. like the the affirmative action hire. Yeah. The token. Yeah. The token. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I I I I've been guilty of it. I mean, after reading when I read the book, like I know that I did a show on IFC for four years, and we didn't have a woman writer. And you know, and I, and I felt bad. And I felt bad. I mean, we had one a woman director, but but my writing room was small, and I made excuses, like you yeah. you said. But uh, but you know, we we learn, we evolve. Your show might still be on the air if you had no, hired I can't women. Stop it. I, stop it. <laughs> I, I was in full control of that. <laughs> okay. And, but now I'm on a show where I'm I'm surrounded. Oh, with glow. Yeah, that's great. On the creative, the on the. Uh, 
technical and on the uh, in front of the camera. There's it's a lot of women. Yeah. yeah, and do you feel like it makes a difference? Sure. I mean, you know, I I don't like I don't know that I noticed. You know, my my I guess in in the writers' room or whatever you get it. There is a boys' club nature to it. I'm not really that kind of bro guy. But you know there there is the fear that you won't be able to be you know the pigs that you are, yeah. <laughs> if you have a woman. But they, but in, it, that turns out to be a good thing. It's maybe good that you don't be the pigs that you are. But uh, but no. Although I do love, there are a couple of times where I've been in those situations where the guys forgot I was there, and so they said the thing you well, shouldn't sure, say. Sure. There's one super famous comedian whose name I would not mention uh-huh. who. <laughs> I'll never forget saying the best thing about being famous is you forget how tight teenage pussy is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that, and how'd you respond to well, that? Well, I just, I, I love being in those moments because I feel like that's the real thing. Well, yeah, but right. It's the real thing that needs to be corrected or it's a real thing of like i'm glad i got to observe that you know i think that's the tricky thing about you know because then there's a sort of like hiring women who can hang with the guys you know but it seems like that that's not really what needs to happen either right because then it becomes a a harassing atmosphere you have to put up with this shit right you know the uh a working space of respect where you know, right. yeah, I mean that's that's what the evolution is towards. You know, not sort of like ah, she's one of us; she can take it, and then you go home and feel like shit. Yeah, no, that's true. I think a lot about David Foster Wallace's um, commencement speech, which is called "This Is Water," and yeah. it starts with a joke about two young fish are swimming along, and an older fish swims by and says, "How's the water, boys?" And one fish turns to the other and says, "What's water?" Right. And it's bias is all around us and we're swimming in it yeah and and i've been biased and you've been biased and the more we recognize that and acknowledge it and call it out the more progress we can make yeah progress and also there it's sort of like uh, it, it's one of those things where you don't know in, in that in that yeah. joke in that story like you don't know yeah you know you're like i guess that is that yeah you know you're so set in your ways or you're set in your habits or culturally you're you know uh it's always been the way you remember it right and so a lot of times when when something changes your first reaction is be like oh fuck this or or you're lucky right right yeah (laughs) right right well there's that but then like i think as the as it you know you start to you know be empathetic and see your own part in things that you're like, ah, you know, it's, this is the right thing to do, whatever yeah. that is, you know? But, like, when you started, so you, the guy from Spy says you should write TV, and then what do you do? Oh, so I write a spec script. Yeah, for? Um, it's Gary Shandling's oh, show. Oh, yeah. Because I should have written one for, you know, the Cosby show, which or was the big show at the time. But my favorite show was It's Gary Shandling's show, yeah. which broke the fourth wall. I actually like that show Better than the Larry Sanders. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and I got an agent off my spy articles. Yeah. And they sent, it was Gavin Pallone, who you might know. And Gavin also represented um, Al Jean and Mike Reese. And Conan? Yes, he does. Yeah. So he was like, this is when Gavin was a manager at UTA? No, this is, he's an agent, agent at, at, U- ICM, at ICM, like maybe just barely not an assistant. Huh. And 
So he sends my spec script to Mike and Al, and they give it to Alan Zweibel, and then I get a call from Gavin saying they bought it, which it's like you're yeah. a rookie and you, in your first at-bat, yeah. you hit a home run. Right. So they said, well, they want to fly you out. They'll give you notes on the script. And, and I said, wow, that's great. So like the next week, um, you know, in, in I think it was maybe Sunset Gower and, you know, I meet Gary yeah. who um, does like a double take when he sees me in Zweibel's office. Like, yeah. what is this girl doing mm-hmm. here? And uh, Alan said she wrote that spec script we wrote we liked about the party line. And um, Gary says to me, uh, "You write like a guy, right?" Which at the time was a huge compliment, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And now, like I look back and kind of think that's the problem, <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, when you when you when you're putting this together and you you know you're having this awakening or these moments of awareness around this stuff. I mean, at the time, but how do you frame that in your head now? I mean, he was still giving you a compliment, oh, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, and I love Gary, and they had, it's, to finish the story, they end up, he didn't feel like giving notes that day. So we said, can we do this some other day? Um, and we ended up playing ping pong on the set. <laughs> and you can play. I can play a yeah. little. And then I went home, and they decided not to buy that script, and they asked me to do another script, um, the pitch was two words, haunted condo. Right. Pretty funny. Yeah. And so I wrote another script, and they didn't make that one either, but they paid me. Right. So that was the first paid gig. Yeah, that was my first paid gig. And that and that uh, got you what? That got you out here, or did it, you know, not yet? Not yet. Wilton North got me out here. Yeah. And then I kept going, and then when that was canceled, I, I go back to New York, um, and then... I try to get on Letterman. That's that's really the holy grail, right? Um, to write for David. For write to write yeah. for Dave. He's the yeah. funniest man on TV. Right. Um, and I send him my packet, and I don't hear anything from them. But um, the Smothers Brothers did a 20th anniversary special in 1988. And they brought back all the old writers like Steve Martin and Bob Einstein and Mason Williams. Wow. And the show did so well that CBS picked them up for another uh, five, six episodes. So they were they couldn't get the same staff. Like Steve Martin's not going to come sure. do it. So, I again, I have no idea how it happened. They got my material. I mean, I know my agent sent it, but... and. Um, I get a call. Do you want to meet? I'm in. The guy was in New York, so we meet, and there was a little misunderstanding. He had read my Letterman material, and he thought I wrote on the show, so I had to explain that no, that was just a submission. But secretly, I was thinking like, oh, he thought it was good enough to be on the show. Right? Did you find you got along with everybody? I mean, did you look up to them from before? You you were probably I was too. I was too young. Yeah. And in fact, um. When they asked me if I knew about the Smothers Brothers, you know, I said yes, and then ran to the Museum of Broadcasting. Right, you had to, that's what you had to do. I remember when I went to watch Woody Allen's variety show, when he did a variety show on NBC or somewhere, like there were certain bits of television, they, there was no YouTube, you right. had to go down to that museum, and you had to wait sometimes to get a booth. 
and then they had to they had to call up the stuff. You had to tell them what you wanted. Yeah. Jack Parr. I went to watch Jack Parr. Oh, shows. that's great. Because I think I was auditioning for a, a hosting job. But I wanted to see. Oh, that's smart. How you know how the you know the history of it? But that's so yeah. funny. You had to go so do that. I did that, and they were. I was so relieved because they were really funny. Right. Um. Like genuinely, and they. You know, it's such a smart way to do a sketch where you start with a song, you interrupt, you do your bit. Yeah. And bits never have good endings. They just go back to the song. Right. Big finish. Everyone applauds. Right. It's brilliant. Yeah. And that was their thing. That was their thing. Yeah. And so like your brain, your type A brain was sort of like, I get how this works. Yes. <laughs> I can write with, I can write within this, pa- this system, this context. So you get the gig and what happens? Do you move to LA then or what? Not uh, yet, not yet. Not yet. I don't, I don't even buy a car. Um, I end up, I, my first night there, I'm having dinner with Tom Smothers, and he says, well, I got a maid's room in this huge place that CBS rented for me. And it was, um, it was pretty cool because it was in this apartment house right near the Chateau. Yeah. And Betty Davis lived there. Oh, wow. So, like, one of my first days working in Hollywood I'm like waiting for the elevator with Betty Davis. Come on. Yeah. And Chris Guest lived there too. So it's oh, wow. very cool. That's great. Yeah. So you saw Betty Davis. So that's like, I know. That, that means something. It's, it's what's wild about Hollywood. If you, if you do have the fascination or the bug when you come out here and you just see the history of it in people yeah. around, it's, it's kind of heavy. It's kind of great. Yeah. This was just around the corner from where the Garden of Allah mm-hmm. Um apartments were and that's where like Dorothy Parker lived and so it was was pretty fun so you moved into Tommy's maids quarters yeah for a while once we went into production I moved out so but and also like in the book you sort of like again are looking at these um events in your life through the lens of of uh, an enlightened woman now you know so they're they're you know the way you read them now that, you know, that there's some, to put in context, the maid's quarters, like, well, I was working for him. It, it, <laughs> it did, you know, it did feel weird, but, you know, you did feel on some level that there was a subservience that was expected. Right. I, I think it's unique to Hollywood. There are just, there aren't the same rules. It's, no, there's no, there's, there's, there's not, no, right? There's not real rules. Yeah. It's sort of a, a you, you know the system was set up because you're making dreams out here you know and and That's you know right. and you're making you know something that transcends reality so you know what are you willing to do for that to be part of that right and yes we we mess around with reality i mean it's one of the reasons i think you know a real estate guy like donald trump was um attracted to coming into show business well well yeah but he's also a he's like a pt he's like a hustler he's like you yeah. know a snake oil salesman you know he's a big he's he's always been a showman that's always been part of it but yeah i mean the sexual harassment of women is codified in hollywood and we even gave it that cute name the casting cast right why well, that's what i've talked about that with people before it's it's been this way since the beginning of this business you yeah, know, I, I mean, you know, it was they knew what they were. They were taking advantage of, uh, you know, a lot of talented people, beautiful people are are vulnerable. They're insecure. Some of them are fucked up because of it. Yeah. And it, there was always, I think, uh, a lot of uh, uh, predatory nature to it. Yeah. To the this sort of Faustian deal, you know, women had to make. Yeah. To uh, to be part of this world. 
But do you think the the casting couch would have been as acceptable if they called it the rape sofa? No, I don't think. I think I think that's not as cute. <laughs> not as cute. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't catch on. I tried to get that to go. <laughs> but but it, I I thought that you know in handling your own story about that, uh, uh, your own Me Too story, you know, with Jim Stafford, of all people. I what, know, it's so cheesy. Oh, my God. Why couldn't it have been Glenn Campbell? <laughs> I mean. <laughs> but I but I thought the way you wrote it, I don't know how much, I mean, I imagine you thought about it quite a bit, that be, because it was one of those situations where the lines blurred and you would follow through with something that you didn't want to follow through with, but you were in the situation and you did. But but the way the one detail you put in there was pretty great. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's all real. It just, it's it just, just a fact. But yeah, but but what you chose, you know, to not make it, you know, you know, necess- you know, uh, necessarily more sordid, but to make it pathetic, was that you know, you, or wait, funny. <laughs> same thing a lot of times. Yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, it, was that the the hairpiece moment? Which I thought was pretty, pretty brilliant. That was pretty good because it was awful. Is... Uh, yeah, you felt awful for you. You know, he was kind of awful. Yeah. Y- you know, and he tells you what you need to know about him. Yeah. Um. You know, I spoke with a lawyer, and they they said, "Look, if if this is truth, that's a defense. Just don't include any details that you're not a hundred percent certain about." So this was a long time ago, and yeah. and um. Uh, I'm not going to give everything away now, but I'll just say, because um, I want people to read the book. Sure. But uh, I do find out that he's wearing a hairpiece. Yeah. So I started Googling, like, to, like, does he wear a hairpiece? Like, am I certain of that? And I did find this book written about rock stars. And, and there's, there was a chapter about vanity, and he's in there yeah. listed under... Um, uh, musicians who wear hair pieces. <laughs> oh, good. So you found it. <laughs> so I've got backup. I tell that. you, if if that's the only thing he's, if he comes after you for that, he's got bigger problems. <laughs> Do you, you know what I mean? You know, I mean, like if that's if that's what he locks into, it's like, yeah, the other part was true, but fuck the hair, the pair. Well, yeah. I, I'm I I've had no contact with him, and you know, I'm gonna guess uh, he quote, <clears throat> doesn't remember it the same way. Right, of course. But here's so. But like, let's set yeah. that up a little bit. So you're, you know, you you got the job on the sm- in the Smothers room, Smother Brothers writing room, and a series of events happened. There was a change, right, in staffing, and Jim Stafford, who did, you didn't sense liked you to begin with. No, he did not. That you were really the the only woman in the room, and this was a bunch of uh, well, at least under his guidance, was right. it, just sort of a boys' club. But but yeah, no, Mason mean. Williams was amazing. Yeah. Mason was a mentor. Yeah, and and Jim was this guy who we'd be sent off to come up with um, cold opens over the weekend and I'd walk in on Monday with my ideas and he would say, oh, thanks, Nell, but some of the boys and I sat around the around the pool this weekend and we worked it all out. Yeah. So you can't be good at your job if you're not even participating. Sure. And that was the way he had set it up. And he's just a, he was a singer. He wasn't even really a writer, was he? No, it was a novelty act. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he had a hit that Spiders and Snakes. I remember that. It was in high, junior high, I think. Yeah, it was huge. Was it, I don't like spiders and snakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I really don't like spiders <laughs> and snakes. <laughs> but, but ultimately what happened was that 
you know, you still, despite knowing what was going on, you felt compelled to try to keep pleasing these people. Sure. Or him. Right. And that's part of, you know, that's type A and that's the subjectiveness of this business too, right? Like your jokes will be funnier if the people like you. Right. So then you just found yourself in an awkward situation. Well, he manipulated me into an awkward situation uh-huh. um, at the rap party. Yeah, it's weird. I've never really talked about it. Isn't that uh-huh. you know? It was yeah. a long time ago, and so I always laugh when people say, "Well, why didn't they bring it up earlier?" It's you know, it's hard. It's just, and I'm privileged and su- had a lot of success. Yeah, and even I couldn't do it because it's um. Well, for me, it's. I don't like admitting I was a, a victim in right. any way. Yeah. And it's hard because I in those situations that you know whether you are you become paralyzed in the moment or or you act against your own self-interest because you think you should that like it, it, I imagine in your mind that it 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 clouds things a little. Well, I was really touched by your story about your philosophy professor. And by the way, one of the things about me too is I've had so many male friends open up and tell me stories that range from, you know, inappropriate touching from the swim instructor to like full on rape. And I think I, I, I don't like the, this is a time for men to shut up and listen. I disagree completely i think this is a time for everyone to speak up and to work together yeah no i i I agree yeah and i i think a lot of us have have those stories i mean power you know dynamics uh uh, abusive power dynamics happen you know sexualized abusive power dynamics happened uh, um, in both genders either way the definition of power is getting someone to do something that you want them to do Mm -hmm. and I was thinking of... Is that the definition? Well, that's my definition. I like it. Um, A definition. Yeah. So, I don't know if this works. You'll tell me. I thought of this driving over as yeah. an example of, of what it's like um, to be coerced into something that you might not want to do and how... When it, I would love the point to be made that consent is not the same as she did it. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they're... There are differences. So let's say um, you're you're at the bank because you're old and you don't do all your checking online. So you're actually in the bank when a bank robber comes in armed and he rounds everyone up and says, I'm going to put you in the vault. And he tells everyone to march over to the vault and to get in. Now, one person, let's say, is claustrophobic. Mm-hmm and really doesn't want to go into the vault. But but let's say you're that person, what do you do? You go into the vault because no. the threat of harm yeah. is so great, you're going to that's going to take precedence over other fears. Yeah, I think that's true. Right? My my first thought was like I just make such a scene <laughs> that like I can't I can't go in. Yeah, it's like um, yeah. Well, you might, but then other people might say, shh, Shut just up, go yeah. along. No, I get that. Do it. Yeah. So then, then um, you know, you're let out, and maybe nine out of those ten people are fine with being marched into the vault, but one person was traumatized sure. by that event. Right. And 
you know, if you went to the bank robber and said, um, you traumatized that person, and they said, well, that's not how I remembered it. I just asked her nicely <laughs> to go into the vault, and she walked in on her you know, own accord. I, right. um, well, yeah, I had a gun, but I didn't point it at her. Sure. And I think that's, do you think that's a good example? Kind of, except that like the banker would be like, look, I'm a fucking bank robber. That's what true. You, <laughs> Why are you <laughs> asking me? Yeah, yeah. Just, what do you want me to do with him? I'm so, she got upset. What do you want from me? I, I, I got to rob the could bank. Think like she could like she didn't fight back. Yeah. But the threat of harm to your career is is real, and and that's why you go along with things that you might not otherwise go along with. Yeah, and I and I I, I also think right. It, there's the wanting to to get ahead and be accepted and to try to be liked, but there's also like I think there's also a. Comp- Sometimes you comply in hoping that it, it will stop. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that's that. the other side of that is like, okay, if, 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 if I just let him do this, maybe we can put this to rest. Yeah. But that doesn't happen. And, and yeah. then, then you've, you've fucked yourself more because now you're uncomfortable about that. The relationship becomes weird. Yeah, they, there's no winning it. But throughout this book, which I don't think we're really talking about, is is you know you do give sort of life lessons about you know writing and show business and working with people and and men you trust and women you trust and you know how hard you know writing for television and writing in general is. But then you yeah. know, uh, and, and it's and, hard for everyone. Sure. Yeah. But you know, beneath that, you know, there is this other thing where you know I found it, uh, you know, you know, sort of disconcerting and, and horrible uh when that guy edited your when you you guys some, were writing with somebody oh yeah at charmed and he rewrote every but as yeah. a tactic you know yeah. like when when i you know like because i'm not that i'm rarely that political a thinker you know in terms of you you know what i mean i'm the worst i yeah you know fucking somebody yeah yeah for you know for the long haul you know like that 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 guy you know what happened exactly he and I were um, co-writing an episode. It was a sweeps episode for Charm. And you were a staff writer? No, I'm co-EP, and You're, he's oh, so. EP. And we turn it in. He loves my teaser act yeah. one and two, and he, he wrote three and four. Right. Um, and then while we're waiting for it to go into production, I get a call from my agent. He His contract's up, and they say, uh, you know, they're curious if you'd be willing to step up um, if his contract doesn't make. So he's probably holding out for more money. Right. And they're asking to see if they probably lowball you into the job. Exactly. Right. But I'm not going to play this game because I know that being helping your boss makes you um, valuable and yeah. threatening your boss <laughs> uh, does not. Right. So I say, look, I'm not going to entertain any right. talk until he decides what he wants to do. Um, but I'm pretty sure he got wind of it because the day of our table read, and this is the draft has been in production for weeks. I sit down and he turns to me, I'm next to him, and he says, you know, I made a few changes last night. And I think, okay, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I open up the script and the way you know a change has been made is there's an asterisk mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. um, on the margin. For, for my three acts it's there are just all asterisks it, it was i describe it like you know all work and no play makes jack a dull yeah, boy right. it's yeah. just like i'm i'm riffling through the um the papers 
And it was really humiliating because, you know, it, it, I think he it would be very easy for ma- him to have made it clear to the cast and all the executives who come to the table read that it looked like he had rewritten every line of mine when, in fact, he he was adding commas. Right. You know, he was changing also to two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. So it was not major changes, but yeah. just enough to get the asterisk to make it look you look like stupid. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was just sort of mind-blowing to me. I know. But then there was the other sort of uh, situation where it's more subtle. Like, uh, where what was the writing room where... What was, it, what was the whole tampon riff? Oh, that was at Letterman. <laughs> that was my first day um, at Late Night with David Letterman, which yeah. was the NBC show, and this is 1990. But this is like, so you had, you, maybe we should go back. You did have good experiences. I mean, you did, yes. <laughs> you did, you know, you wrote for Newhart's second show. Right, in and the final was, season. And, and were there women in the room there? Uh, they didn't make it through the whole season, but there were when I got there. And you stayed through the whole season. I did. I hung on. But it's so funny to me that you didn't really get to know Bob or anything. Like, you, <laughs> you know, like my writers, I, they were always around, you, you know, like when uh, in terms of on set or when needed. But I think it was different then where you were. And I don't I never worked on. Well, I was really show. I was shy. I was new. It was my first sitcom. And, um, you know, decades later, I w- watched this TED talk that Sheryl Sandberg gave yeah. where she talked, the first thing she spoke about is that women need to sit at the table. Right. And it resonated so strongly because I was the one who, instead of sitting at the table, would sit in the chairs around the periphery. Uh-huh. And, right. Because so it's both literal and metaphorical, which is why I love it. Right. I get it. Yeah. For you. But yeah, it does make sense. But but see, like, well, I guess what the point I'm making is that by the time you took... Uh, the job at Letterman, you know, you had done, you know, a lot Newhart of stuff. Newhart and the Simpsons and the Smothers Brothers. And, but and, not Coach yet? No. No, that came after. But but the Simpsons, like, let's talk a little bit about that because that seemed to be, you know, a, a room full of nerds that were respectful of women, no? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got in on the ground floor because... Um, <clears throat> I, I watched the premiere and I, I called my agent and said, I want to write for the show. It was yeah. just so mean. I loved it. Yeah. And so they brought me in for the second season. Yeah. And I wrote the Fugu episode, the Blowfish episode. Yeah. Um, and it was a really good experience. And um, I don't tell this story in the book, but I, I'll, I'll tell it now that um, there were writers pushing for me to be hired on staff uh-huh. and apparently Sam Simon said I'm going through a divorce I don't want any women in the room mm. and it was another five years another over a hundred more episodes before another woman wrote an episode after mine and mine mine went incredibly smoothly you know it turned out to be a fine episode so that's that was disappointing but you do. You seem to find like uh, uh, you know, you you find room for kindness for Simon, you know, yeah. in, in in writing about him in retrospect. But that you know, that seemed that was clearly. Well, it's called just the funny parts. I I almost wrote just the angry and bitter parts, but it's like eight <laughs> volumes. <laughs> right, right. I get it. I get it. But 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 that that's that's really a heinous story. 
that like you know that he would you know keep women out of that room for that long because of you know his personal feelings that were but he was clear about it at least he wasn't pulling any punches <laughs> <laughs> i know yeah thank you for your clarity but i get to letterman and i i did have a lot more experience most of the writers it was their first tv job right and i i guess i'm just uh, i'm just trying to like because it, it has been up and down but the wilton north report you know you were friends with conan you met these guys yeah. and, and that that was a pro a, a good experience smothers brothers not good no good but because of tommy but because of stafford yeah. it got weird and yeah. bad and Newhart was good mostly yeah right but you you weren't feeling uh sexualized or or isolated or well one of the eps walked by <laughs> was overheard in the office screaming women cause nothing but pain but I don't know. But we don't know if that was his personal life. Or... We think it was personal. No, I, I made it to the end, so that was good. And that show had this guy, Bob Benditson, who was total mentor to me and really believed in me and, and taught me a ton. So that was, I mean, that's what you try to find, that like that one good person and sure. the bad experience, right? right? I, of course, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, there's always horrible experiences and then, you know, right. Yeah, yeah, if you're in an ensemble or a group of people, there will be somebody that will provide a reprieve or some wisdom that you can hopefully latch on to. Right, well, I talk about when when evaluating shows to work on, um, I talk about the three Ps, which is people, process, and product. Uh-huh. And so, you know, the people are, who are you spending all day with? The process is, well, how long are the days? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the product is, is it something you're proud of? Um, is it, and is it something that's popular? Yeah. And those are two different things. Sure. It is very rare to get three out of three. Uh-huh. And I, it's really happened once in my entire career. Which was with- which... Murphy Brown, oh, yeah. and which was a terrific experience. And then- you know, you're lucky if you get two, if if you like the people and you're making a good product, but yes, it, the hours are long, so that's sad, but sure. you know, that's that's okay. And then there are a lot of shows where it's just one. Right. Where it's like the process and the product are not good, and but the people are. But, but it is sort of interesting though, on the side that you are working in, which I never did and I wouldn't do, uh, as a TV writer, is that you know you throughout the book you talk about how you you have to ha- be somewhat cynical uh, in a way because of the disappointment and the rejection right. and you know your expectations are constantly tempered and and that you know the things that seem great and are going uh, don't go for dumb reasons or yeah. maybe reasons that you don't even know it's a relentless horrible disappointing life yet uh, you, you know at the end you sort of frame it. Like a like a, a rat pushing a food pellet button. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Like I like I I can only think about it for myself. Yeah. You know that that if two of the peas out of the three peas aren't happening more than once for me, I'm not fucking doing that anymore. <laughs> I get I'm not a type A personality, but you know it's like, it, but it seemed that you sort of leveled off on wanting to direct, and that even the experience. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Letterman and then talk a little bit about Sabrina because I was curious about that. So the Letterman thing in in that, I I mentioned the tampon thing because you mentioned it. What happened that first day? 
Oh, well, I'm the only female writer. I'm the first one since Meryl Marco left the show a couple of years before I got there. And um, one writer stops by my office, and we have this really nice exchange. We yeah. have friends in common. And then at the very end, he pauses, and he like pointed at me and said, before this is over, I'll see a tampon fall out of your purse. Yeah. And walks away. So I thought, well, that's weird. Why would he have said that? It is weird. It's weird no matter how you slice it. Yeah. Yeah, and I come up with a theory in the book about yeah. why I think he did it. Um, because it, you could have also made it, you know, before this is over, I will hear you fart. Yeah. Like if he just wanted to bring up some embarrassing bodily function, right. he didn't have to go to the one thing that singled me out right. from everyone else. Right, and and then like you know that that environment is is notoriously uh, un, undiversified. The Letterman show was was it, yeah yeah, and you, you know ultimately you did you, you know you wrote a, a big piece on that. Right, nineteen years later. In fact, I was in a working on Warehouse Thirteen at the time, the Sci-Fi Channel show, which I loved. It's yeah. such a good well, show. Well, that's interesting. Like you made this because you were such a sci-fi fan when you were a kid. Yeah, you know, and you made us all this this time as a spent all this time as a comedy writer, and then you get this opportunity to work on this great little show that what turns out to be the best thing, you know, satisfying thing. It was, know? and it was magic and comedy yeah. and and mystery. It's everything I love, um, but. Someone would say, make a sexist comment, and someone else would go, watch out, you know, Nell's going to write an article about you. And I would go, yeah, 19 years from now, you're going to be so sorry. Right. What <laughs> was that? What, what, I can't What provoked the piece about Dave? Well, Dave gets on the air because he's in the, this right. blackmail sex yeah. scandal. Sure. And he cops to doing his, yeah. quote, some creepy stuff. Right. And that is that he has had sex with women, plural, yeah. who worked on his show. Yeah. Um, and that was then, then the National Organization of Women comes out with a statement talking about how there's a power in, imbalance. And any time a boss has sex with an employee, it, it, um, it's inappropriate. And... Then uh, the uh, another one of the executive producers, Rob, speaks up and, and gives a statement about how he had worked on the show for uh, over 20 years, yeah. and it was completely fair and merit-based. Right. And like I said, my soul did a spit take. Yeah. Because if you want to say, yeah, we fuck over women, and we've never had a black person in 33 years work on the show never late show and late night never had a single person of color in the writer's room mm -hmm. and if you want to say yeah they just didn't fit in or we didn't think they'd fit in but if you say it's all merit-based then then i had i felt compelled to speak out yeah and i really thought it, it might end my career yeah what was the piece called it was called letterman and me yeah and it didn't end your career, and it did. No. you know, it did provoke a great, you know, conversation culturally. And uh, I hope so. That was in two thousand and nine. Yeah, yeah. And I just like you know, in the book, when people read it, you can see like because you always wondered if David read it, and then you had an opportunity to see Dave. That and, was wild. And you still don't really know if he read it. I mean, I think you'd like to believe he didn't, but I don't know. I don't think he did. Really. 
like because when he said um, congratulations on your book, right? And I said, you know, and meaning Lean In, which had spent sixteen weeks at number one on the bestseller list. Cheryl Sandberg and you wrote, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so Dave goes, congratulations on your book, and I go, Dave, you don't know about my book, and he said. Yeah, the one you wrote with that woman. Yeah, right. <laughs> so he's trying to be. Someone diplomatic. told him yeah. I had written a book that did well. Yeah. So Murphy Brown had a great experience. Murphy Brown was great. Um, yeah, that was. And Sabrina, how did that work with Sabrina? Because did you create it? What did it mean to be the creator of that show? Well, it's it was a comic from the Archie yeah, universe, right? Um, but I created the TV show, right? And um, but I. There were certain rules. I had to use certain characters, and um, Sabrina and Harvey, Salem the cat, and the two ants. Yeah. And we got, you know, I begged Caroline Ray to do the show. I love her. I We go oh way back. Oh, my God. She's funny in her bones. Yeah, yeah. She's great. Um, and but that, you only stayed there a year. I did. But after you leave, because you, you're the creator, you still, you're always going to be a, produ- a producer, right? Is that how it works? Or just not a producer? Just a creator? You always get paid. Yeah. So that was a good gig. That was a great gig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what you hope for. Although right? I found out that there was um, a man was supposed to create the show and then fell out at the last second. Yeah. I learned that my deal was 25% of what his deal was. Mm. I'm like, I, 77%. That would have been awesome. Yeah. 25%. Ugh. I know. I lived in, we lived in a nice house in Santa Monica, but it was only one story. And I always used to tell people I'd have a second floor if I'd been a guy. <laughs> you would have. <laughs> and then you did, you, you worked on Monk a bit, NCIS. Oh, I love Monk. Do you know Andy Breckman? He is one of the funniest people on the planet. No, but I, was Sharpling there when you were there? Yeah, he's great. I love Tom Sharpling. Yeah, I, that was such a fun room to he's be in. He's sweet and funny, that guy. I yeah. have to, I'm going to give him a call, actually. I haven't talked to him in a while. And then you were able to write for Obama a bit and Hillary a bit. You know, like this is really taking you to a lot of different places, you know, doing this job. Well, Obama, Tomlin. so he's so funny. Yeah. And and he's, um, I was once talking about Obama's delivery with Albert Brooks. And Albert says he he's like Carson. Yeah. He delivers jokes like Carson and he'll repeat a, a word that he likes. Uh-huh. Um, didn't Albert give you some other advice at some point? Yeah, he's, I didn't, you know, we became friends, you know, in the past decade, but, sure. you know, not forever. And he's, look, but he, especially with the gender stuff, he teamed up with Monica Johnson, you know, to write Lost in America. Yep. And I think that's why Julie Haggerty's character is so funny and flawed. Sure. Um so he's, I mean, but he's special. God, he's the funniest Yeah, and you man. know, it was funny. It was one of those things where you, you appreciated yourself when you were younger, and then you got to meet him later in life because of just real life, not even because of- Right. But he said something about humanity and about- Right. A fairer, a fairer sampling of humanity will always produce funnier material. Yeah. And I believe that. That's I, touching yeah. to me. Yeah. That's why I was saying that the book is, it's not like a- like an industry help book, but there's a lot of lessons that you've learned throughout, not just about being a woman, but just about being in this dumb business that right. I think are helpful, you know, in terms of framing how you approach things. Right, and how not to get pushed around, which is, I think, what we're all <laughs> fighting sure. against. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that, like, it seems that the, that the relationship with uh, Sheryl Sandberg, that, you know, that, 
gave you a way of framing and more voice, you know, just by watching her before you worked with her uh, you, to sort of look back over your life and then sort of create, you know, this like a, a retrospective feminist arc for yourself. Well, what Cheryl does better than anyone is she she can get that 30,000 foot view yeah. and then zoom into that data point yeah. that proves it. And, you know, I tend to get stuck in my own life and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all the data points and, and not taking that big view. And so she really taught me how to take that step back and um, see the patterns. Right, so, right. Um, in, in culturally and in your own life. Right. And, you know, some things I did instinctively. So I've had two kids and I tried to hide my pregnancy for as long as I could. When people ask me if I have kids on the first day of work, I always say, um, yeah, but I'm blanking on their names right now. <laughs> yeah. Because there is, um, you know, there, there's a motherhood penalty. Yeah. And, and women take a hit the second they become mothers, even if it's adoption. Hmm. So it's not even like, well, you know, you need to sleep more. <laughs> right. It's And men's um, pay actually gets higher. That's interesting because on, on some level, I, you know, the, the idea is that you're not going to be committed to the job or you're going to be you know, pulled away oh, by your children. Yeah. But, but on the flip, the, the flip side of that, you know, outside of the pair of the else, they completely expect men to abandon their families uh, because that's the nature of, of work, of the way that the, the culture works is that, you know, they'll you know, yeah. let the kid and the wife stay at home. You just you do what we want you to right. do. Right. You, your baby was born yesterday. You yeah. can take that day off, but we expect you in. That is changing, though, because I, um, in the rooms I've been in recently, uh -huh. there's a lot of men saying, I got to leave early and pick my kid up at school. Yeah. And, which is fantastic. The only thing that's slightly annoying is, oh, he's such a good dad. Oh, right, yeah. And I know if I tried to do that, I'd be pulled aside and told, like, do you want this job? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Some of this stuff get, gets complicated. And I think you handle it very well in terms of, you know, knowing men that were good and bad and knowing bad men that had good qualities. Right. And knowing, you know, good men that, you know, could be dicks too, you know. I mean, I, I think that the movement, you know, that the stuff that sort of uh, came from your relationship with, with, with Cheryl and also like the way you framed your life in this is that it's all, it, it's not condemning. It's, 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 it's sort of, a, it opens up a dialogue. It doesn't close one. Oh, I you know? hope so. Yeah. I, I, I like the book. I, like I said, I, I enjoyed reading it. And I'm, I'm, it was great talking to you. You feel all right about everything? Um, I feel better. <laughs> better. Because it's ending. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. No, I tell that story. Um, I don't know if you remember about meeting Leno. Yeah. When I'm, I don't know, oh, the comedian? 26. You got to be a comedian? <laughs> so we needed a host for the Wilton North Report, the, yeah. the show so bad that it doesn't exist. Um, and Conan, Greg Daniels, and I were dispatched to, what would it have been on Melrose? What is that, the comedy store? Um, Mel no, the uh, improv. improv yeah. Okay, so we're dispatched to the improv. Now, bear in mind, Ellen DeGeneres has come in, auditioned, knocked it out of the park, and the executive producer was like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we need a host, and we're watching people, and we're taking a break in the lobby, and Jay Leno walks in. 
And he's like the biggest star any of us have ever seen. Yeah. And um, he's really friendly. He comes over and we're chatting it up with Jay Leno. And I, I make some you know, rude comment. And he looks at me and he goes, you're funny. You should do stand-up. Yeah. And I was like, what, me? And he said, yeah. And he gestured toward the showroom and said, don't you look at those people and think I could do better than that? And I said, no, I look at those people and think every one of them is brave. And he goes, yeah, you shouldn't do stand up. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever like super confidence like you need to propel you on that stage, I I mean it's amazing that you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, like you know, after, you know, a decade or two, I mean, you know, you get nervous if you for different reasons, but not about getting on stage. Oh, that's right, because that one time I met you, you were about to go do a set. Sure, yeah. And you were just like, yeah, I got to do a set in 15 minutes. Yeah. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've been doing it a long time. <laughs> I, would hope, I panicked for you. Yeah, I would hope I wouldn't be that, you know. I didn't, I didn't know how long it would take for it to go away, but it eventually did. But like if I was 25 years in and still like, I, I would, I, I'd do that with other things in my mind. But thanks for talking to me, and great, great job on the book. Thank you, Mark. All right, folks, that's it. That's it for, for, for this episode. I think I'll play some slow blues for our uh, slow slide into autocracy. <laughs> <laughs>